Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 6, and I'll explain to you why we are to tell the world that Jesus Christ is coming again. And when you take the Bible and you open to the book of Revelation, there's a lot of nervousness that comes whenever you begin to think about the end of time and how the Bible describes the last days. And it is a difficult subject in some sense, but in other ways it's a very simple subject. And the Bible, while speaking in some apocalyptic language in the book of Revelation that is difficult to interpret, not all of it is intended to be interpreted exactly. There is to be some bit of mystery as to the who and the how and the where, but the Bible calls the last book of the Bible the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so that tells us a very important lesson, and that is in the book of Revelation, the most important person to pay attention to is Jesus Christ. There is no doubt who Jesus is, and there's no doubt what Jesus has come and is coming again to do. The title of the sermon series that we're beginning today, just for several weeks, is called the signs of the times and understanding at least in part the times in which we live and what the signs are that are leading to where the times are headed if any of you have had children since the year 1991 chances are you read a book or have given a book that shares the same name as the title of the sermon today and it is what to expect when you're expecting. How many of you in here have read or have gifted that book? Yeah, what to expect when you're expecting. It kind of, it's sort of a manual almost of what to expect when you are expecting your little loved one. So pregnant mamas everywhere have read that book. It's in its fifth edition now. Lots of updates and lots of things that explain the process of pregnancy. But the book describes itself in this way. It says, quote, your pregnancy explained and your pregnant body demystified, head to feet, back to front, filled with must-have information, practical advice, realistic insight, easy-to-use tips, and lots of reassurance. Have pregnancy symptoms? You will and you'll find solutions for them all. Expecting to become a dad? This book has you covered too. Well, basically, if you are an expecting parent and you don't know what to expect and you don't know what, how to feel and you don't know what your body's going to do and you don't know what the surroundings are or what the doctor says and you just have lots of questions, then that book is for you and it walks you through lots of practical advice and it calms a lot of expecting parents down by answering their questions. If you have questions, read the book. But you know, when you think about the end times, Jesus called these days, he called them birth pains. And if we find ourselves uncomfortable, unsure, and a little mystified about what the future holds and the days and times that we're living in, what God calls us to do is to read the book. 
Not to be afraid of what the ending is, but to be reassured that God knows what the ending is and that He is in control. Friends, we live in some weird and strange and crazy times. From just a few years ago when COVID-19 came on the scene and issues like Black Lives Matter began to cause riots all over the United States. We have in more recent past uh, Russia invading Ukraine and people getting nervous about what that means. And then just on Friday to have the Supreme Court overturn overturn Roe versus Wade and a, a monumental uh, right for life and a protection of life in the womb that never should have been a constitutional uh, right to begin with. But as that 50-year history was reversed just in that one decision, what we find is all sorts of opinions of what does uh, life mean and what, does, what is the meaning of life? Where does it start? How should it be protected? And listen, we've had Christians that have been on their knees with many tears and for many, many years begging for that decision from 1973 to be overturned. And now that it has been overturned and now that there is a step in the right direction to protect life in the womb, we as believers in Christ cannot see that any kind of solution for life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness is, is finally solved. That one issue has been solved on the federal level, and we thank God for that. But what does the church do for the lives that people have outside of the womb? How do we pray with tears for those that do not know Jesus Christ and how do we do what we do as a church to promote the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? We can celebrate and should celebrate that decision being overturned and thank God for that. We also should begin to be mindful of what does the future hold for each and every child that comes into the world. What should our lives be about? What should we promote as a church? How should we live and what should we expect? The book of Revelation is not meant to scare you. and We're only going to look at a snapshot. We're only going to look at one chapter in the book of Revelation. And we're going to take it verse by verse. And if you found Revelation chapter 6, you're going to find in that book, you're going to find the signs of the times. And we're not going to cover all of those signs today. We're just going to take the very first one. But what I want you to notice before we get into the individual signs and the very first sign of the times, we have to understand what the times are. And so inside your bulletin, you'll notice that there is a sermon outline for the three of you that like to take notes. And uh, you know who you are. But inside the bulletin today, not only with the outline, a simple outline of expect the times and examine the signs, you're going to see a lot of other scripture references there. Those are ones that I'm going to read to you in those sections of the message. You're going to seem as though for some of you that your head is spinning a little bit and you're taking in a lot of information. That's why those references are there so you don't miss one of them. So you three can thank me later after the message is over that they're printed there for you, for your notes. 
But the first thing that we've got to do before we understand what the end is like, we have to first of all expect the times. Now again, as I mentioned just a moment ago, Jesus described these times as birth pains. They are those early warning signs that the baby is about to be born. Those early warning signs that wake you, mom, up at 2 a.m., to tell you something is going on. This is not just a normal kick. This is not just a normal feeling. This is a contraction. It hurts. It means that something is about to happen. Those of you that have gone through this, you know exactly what that feels like. And that's what Jesus said the times are like. A simple definition of what we're going to look at for just a few moments that the Bible has called the day of tribulation or the great tribulation is a period of time before the final judgment of Jesus. Now friend, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you I don't know when the tribulation is going to begin and I'm going to explain to you how we know what the tribulation is. But I want you to think of it like a stopwatch. The Bible says that these birth pains, these early signs are leading to the final judgment of Jesus. When the Bible describes in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes again and all of us with Him, and He's riding on a white horse and He has come to take back control of everything on the earth that is out of control. When is that day coming? Well, think of it like a stopwatch. God essentially has a stopwatch in His hand and it is set for seven years. And the moment that he puts his finger on the stopwatch and begins that time, from that moment on, we are guaranteed a seven-year journey called the tribulation. That's when it's going to begin. Now, we don't know what day that's going to begin. We don't know exactly what the world events are going to precipitate that moment to transpire. But here's what we do know. We know that the Bible teaches us that it is a seven-year period we know that it is going to be difficult, and we know that there are signs telling us what to look for. But we've got to expect the times. How do we know that the tribulation is a seven-year period? Well, on your sermon outline, there is a scripture reference of Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel chapter 9 describes um, a period of time that is called 70 weeks. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, it talks about 70 weeks or literally 70 sevens. And it says this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now that scripture reference tells us one thing. It is a prophecy written in the 600 B.C.s speaking about an end time when everything is made right. And it calls it the 70-week period. Well then the two verses following the one that I just read describes the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem one last time and a period, and it breaks out those 
time, that time frame of 70 weeks into three little chunks. The first chunk is seven weeks. And then the next chunk is 62 weeks. And then in verse 27, there is one final week. Now, you might think, okay, pastor, you just said that the tribulation is going to last seven years, and the Bible just called it a week, if that is referring to the tribulation. Let me explain it like this. In the book of Jeremiah, there's a similar vision that describes these weeks, or literally sevens, as a period of seven years, where each day of the week represents one year. So one week represents one year. Well, if that's true, then he breaks these weeks out, these sections of years in seven and 62 and one. What's the significance between the seven and the 62 and the one? Now, your mathematic brain is probably a little confused right now, and that's okay. So let's just add the first two together, the seven and the 62, and you get 69. Here's what the Bible says happens at the end of the 69 weeks. It says that not only is the temple built, but it says that the Messiah will be cut off. That's the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is 69 sevens, 69 groups of seven years, what is that time frame? That's 483 years. So easy to do. You take a calendar, you go to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, and you back up 483 years. Was Daniel's vision right about those 69 groups of sevens? Well, he talked about the building of the temple one last time before the Messiah is cut off. If you were to take 483 years and subtract that and go back into the B.C.'s, from the crucifixion of Jesus, you begin right at the time of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah when God's people were allowed to go back into Jerusalem and build the temple one last time. The building of the temple took place between 445 and 433 B.C. So the decree to go back and build the temple was 483 years before the crucifixion of Jesus. And within that span of those 69 weeks, shortly after the decree was made, then the building began. So Daniel was right. He was right in the fact that each of those weeks represents seven years. He was right in the fact that the seven, uh, the 69 groups of seven led us up to the cutting off of the Messiah, the crucifixion of Jesus. But that just leaves one week hanging out there, spinning and spinning, yet to be fulfilled. That is the week that Daniel says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Listen to what he says about that last week. Speaking of the Messiah, he says, and he shall make a strong covenant with many. For one week, and for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. 
The desolator is nothing more than the Antichrist. God is going to make a covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ for that one week. He's going to make a strong covenant with the earth. And He's going to covenant that during that week that judgment is going to be poured out upon the earth until the desolator, the Antichrist, is cut off, which happens in Revelation chapter 18 and Revelation chapter 19 when the Lord Jesus comes again. Friend, your head may be spinning right now, and you may think, you know, that's a whole lot of information in a short amount of period of time. Let me just tell you, well, first of all, you can go back and read all of these scriptures, which is why you have the reference. But second of all, I'm telling you this for one reason. God knows what he's talking about. Some people look at the Bible as a book of myths, a book of fairy tales, a book of happenstance and coincidences. The astronomical probability of every promise and covenant and prophecy in the Bible being an absolute guess and happenstance is too much to even begin to fathom. God is not just a lucky guesser. God holds everything in His hands. And He has decreed from the beginning of time exactly how every aspect of the universe is was and will be, including you. And so the time of tribulation, when the stopwatch begins, that seven-year period, that last week, or that last period of seven years, is yet to be fulfilled. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, shares that all of these events of Revelation chapter 6, that we're going to look at over the next few years, Jesus outlines them perfectly in exactly the same fashion that Revelation chapter 6 lays out for you. Is Jesus a good guesser? Or did Jesus know from the beginning of time exactly how everything was going to be? You say, Pastor, I don't know when these things are going to happen. I'm sure we all have plenty of time. Well, you've opened your Bible, I trust, to Revelation chapter 6. I want you to flip to Revelation chapter 1. Just for a moment, I want you to just flip from Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I want you in your Bible or your uh, smart device to look at those chapters. They contain letters to actual churches that existed at the time of John in 90 A.D. recording the book of Revelation. These letters were written to actual churches. And then you get to chapter 4. And chapter 4 says, After this I looked, verse 1, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. This is the beginning of the time in which we are studying. After these things, after this, after the time of the church has passed, and the scene shifts to heaven, and now we get a picture of God essentially with His hand on the stopwatch, and we are eagerly wondering when is the tribulation going to begin. Well, in chapter 4, you have heavenly worship. You can just see your, let your eyes look at some of those. We sang some of those same words this morning in the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. We are envisioning in Revelation chapter 4 this heavenly worship. John is getting to see it. He's getting to see what current worship looks like right now 
in heaven. And he is explaining these things. And then we get to chapter 5. And chapter 5 contains a scroll. Now if you've ever seen a scroll, it is a long sheet of paper that is rolled up on either end. And it is unrolled in so that it can be read. That scroll contains seven seals. If you don't know what a seal is, just think about a wax melt holding two pieces of paper together and that wax hardening to keep those two pieces of paper from being opened. If you've ever gotten a real fancy letter in the mail where somebody has done a little wax melt thing, then you know what I'm talking about. Or you've seen a movie where they have to break the seal to open the letter. The Bible says on this scroll there are seven seals that need to be broken. And the question in heaven is, who's going to open it? Well, the better question is, what do they contain? This one scroll with seven seals unveils and releases the information that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, and that is, what are the signs that the times are now upon us. And when each one of those seals is broken, one after the other, it becomes more and more obvious what God is doing in the world. That that stopwatch of seven years has started. That these events are starting to unfold, and as Jesus breaks those seals, one by one we begin to realize exactly what His plan is. But friend, you don't have to wait until these signs appear. You can know what these signs are now. And we can understand why this matters. You might be asking yourself that question. In fact, I put myself in your position and you're sitting there and you're thinking, why are we listening to this? When is this going to be over? Why are we talking about the book of Revelation? What difference does it make how long it's going to be and if any of this is even going to be true and Jesus and all of this stuff? You know, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> I, I, I'm just enjoying being in worship and now I've got to think about the end of time. Why does any of this matter? Friend, it matters because we have no witness as a church if we don't believe Jesus is coming again. We have no power in the gospel if we are not professing what people are being saved from. If there is no condemnation in hell, if there is no eternal judgment that Jesus is bringing, and if we don't believe as a church that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again, we have no power in our witness at all. This matters for life and death. This matters for eternity, for your eternity, and for every single person on this planet. Their eternal destiny hangs in the balance of what do we believe about this book. Now, Pastor John reminded you just a few moments ago what you see in the back of the bulletin tonight, and that is a strategy on how to learn how to share your faith conversationally. 
Not necessarily memorizing a lot of stuff, not necessarily learning this fancy way of, uh, of speaking and sharing the gospel with people, but just being able to sit down at a table at a restaurant or somebody's living room or, or somebody's kitchen table and just sharing what does it mean to trust in Jesus and be eternally saved. Now some of you, when he mentioned that or you looked at the back of the bulletin, you decided instantly whether or not you would come tonight or not. Some of you already have plans, and you think, well, I'm not going to make it to that. I'm sure a few people will come. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that if you love Jesus, you'll be there. I'm not going to guilt you into being there because I doubt your sincerity of loving Jesus. That's why you're here this morning. And it's not a matter of, if I love Jesus, I'll come to something the church is offering. No, it's, do you love people that need to know Jesus? Because, friend, if you have a passion for people that do not know Jesus Christ, hearing the good news of Jesus so that their eternal destiny is switched from spending an eternity in hell versus being in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you care about being able to communicate with someone who needs to hear that truth and you want to do it comfortably and you want to do it conversationally, then you'll be here tonight. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you something else. It's supposed to rain this evening. It takes a whole lot of water to get people in the church. It doesn't take much to keep them out. Amen? It's going to rain. Uh, it, it, you know, like I said, some of you are going to look for a reason not to come. And I don't know what all the reasons are that it might cause you to not be here tonight, but I know one reason why everybody should be. That is because if you believe that your eternal destiny is locked into heaven because you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to think about the person that shared the good news of Jesus with you. And what did it take for that person to become confident and comfortable and conversational to share that information with you. What did they do to get to that point where they shared the gospel with you? And why wouldn't you be willing to do the same for somebody who needs to know Jesus? We need to expect the times because they are coming. But secondly, we need to be able to examine the signs. Now, Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, is our text this morning. Those first two verses are the first sign, the first seal that is broken, and we begin to understand when and how the seven-year time period is going to play out. Here's what the Bible says. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Well, later in the book of Revelation, we see the Lord Jesus Christ riding on a white horse with a crown and a sash and names. And so many people have thought, hey, this is Jesus. This is that, that, that first appearance of Jesus as a rider on the white horse, but this is not Jesus. This is the Antichrist. So, Pastor, I don't know who the Antichrist is. We're going to cover that. But how do I know it's not Jesus? Well, the Bible says that a crown was given to him. 
meaning that he was granted authority. He did not earn that authority, but rather it was given to him. And he only comes to conquer and to be in the process of conquering. You see, back in Matthew chapter 24, we learn that Jesus explains also the same signs that we're hearing today. What is the Antichrist like? Well, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 5, the Bible says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him and said, Tell us when these things will be, and what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You see, they wanted a preview before Jesus was even crucified. Hey, tell us what John's going to see uh, it is a couple of decades from now. Just kind of give us a sneak preview of what the end is going to be like. And do you want to know the very first thing that Jesus said to them? He mentioned that first seal. And he said in Matthew chapter 24, he said, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You see, that's what the Bible describes as the spirit of the Antichrist. Something other than Jesus. Some other philosophy. Some other religion. Some other feel-good message. Some other preacher pointing you back to you rather than pointing you to Jesus. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. But what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 6 is when that first seal is broken, the very first thing that's going to happen when the stopwatch is clicked and that seven-year period begins, there is going to appear one who is going to seem like Jesus but is only coming to conquer because authority has been granted to him and he wants you. He wants anybody. He wants to steal, he wants to kill, he wants to destroy. He is Satan's puppet to destroy and take whatever amount of peace is on the world. He wants to build up his own kingdom. He wants to be the big dog on top of the pile and he wants to step on you to get there. He's going to say all the right things. He's going to play the part. He's going to look the part. He's going to have the power, have the authority, and he's going to have the charisma to convince as many people as possible to buy what he is selling. Daniel chapter 7 describes the Antichrist in almost the exact same way that Revelation chapter 13 describes him. I'm telling you, there are so many parallels throughout all of Scripture. I gave you the reference of Daniel chapter 7. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees four beasts. Now this is just prior to him explaining in Daniel 9 what the tribulation is going to be like. But he describes these four beasts, these four world leaders that are coming that are going to scare everybody and lead them and destroy nations. But he says this fourth beast is unusual. He's different. And in Daniel chapter 7, he describes what he sees. And in chapter, 19, or chapter 7, verses 19 to 27 in the book of Daniel, you can turn there or you can take my word for it. It says, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying. 
with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke and made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And he said about the fourth beast, listen to this, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another one shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. Shocker! They shall be given into His hand for a time times and half a time. By the way, that is three and a half years. Exactly half of the tribulation. But the court shall sit in judgment, Daniel says, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed at the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve Him and obey Him. Daniel chapter 7 says here's what's going to happen with this Antichrist. That seal's going to be broken. He's going to show up. And he's going to come to power and he's going to establish himself as a world leader. And just like the Bible describes in the later chapters of the book of Revelation, he's going to set up this mega city called Babylon and everything in the world is going to run through his government. He is going to be the big dog on the top for three and a half years. And at the end of the three and a half year period, from the halfway point to the end of the time of the tribulation, that's when Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 18 and 19 says, Jesus says enough is enough. You've had your time. In fact, Revelation chapter 13 describes the Antichrist in the exact same way that Daniel chapter 7 does and says that he will have this rule for 42 months. Quickly, how long is 42 months? Three and a half years. The same prophecy that Daniel said in Daniel chapter 7. For three and a half years toward the end of the time of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to rule it all. Until the Lord Jesus Christ and all of us come with Him, and with one word He's going to slay the Antichrist, destroy that kingdom, and the Lord Jesus Christ will step foot on this earth and take it all back. You sit here and you say, Pastor, that sounds amazing. That sounds wonderful. That sounds too much for my brain to comprehend. I, I, I don't know about all of that. And, 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 you know, you're saying all of these things, and, you know, I don't know if all of that's going to happen. Friend, these things are already happening. You see, Satan doesn't know when that seven-year stopwatch is going to begin. So in every generation, he raises up some goon, 
He raises up some world leader that can at some point take hold of all of this power. But it is only until God allows at that seven-year period for whomever is the Antichrist to have full reign of the earth. And from that beginning of the seven-year period to the time Jesus comes again, literally will be hell on earth. Until Jesus comes again, we come with Him. And just like Daniel chapter 7 says, and Revelation chapter 19 says, Jesus will be victorious. This is a sign of the times where people will begin to believe and give all their trust in a world system. They'll begin to believe in one person They'll begin to believe that that person can make their life better. They'll buy what he's selling. They'll listen to what he has to say. And they'll give their lives over to something that they think will make them happy. Can I just tell you that even before the Antichrist comes into full power, that's already happening today. You have pulpits all over America where a preacher stands and pretends to preach the gospel, but really he's just tickling the ears and telling people what they want to hear. He's not discussing difficult issues. He's not preaching the gospel of Jesus. He's not telling people about the reality of heaven and the reality of hell. All over the world you have people that are buying into government programs, systems, charismatic leaders. They're buying and they are just blindly walking behind some government system. Sometimes even worse than that, we have people, perhaps some sitting in this place today, who are good people. And they love their family. They love their community. They do lots of wonderful things. But there's no relationship with Jesus because there's no acknowledgement that they need Him. There's no awareness in their life that one day, either when Jesus comes again or when they stop living, that they're going to step into eternity and have to give an account for every sin they've ever committed in their life. Friend, that day of answering for your life is either coming when you die or is coming when the Lord Jesus splits the sky and comes again. One way or the other, the spirit of the Antichrist lies to you and says, you've got plenty of time. Don't worry about that. This is just a fairy tale. None of that's really going to happen. Or hey, even if it does, you've been a good person. You're going to be fine. But see, a little mixture of error and lie mixed with a whole lot of good is still not pure. You know, just imagine if I were to come over to your house and you wanted to make me an omelet. And you had three eggs to make me that omelet in your refrigerator. And you pulled out the first one, it looked great. You pulled out the second one, cracked it, it was beautiful. You pulled out that third one, woo! You could tell it was bad. It was sour, it was bad, it stunk, but you thought, you know what? One out of three ain't bad. He'll never know. And you crack that stinky egg and you put it in there and you mix it all together, make that omelet, and you put it in front of me. How's that going to taste? 
disgusting. Because even with a majority of good, some mixture of bad is still bad. And some of us, even sitting in here, are thinking, hey, I've been a pretty good person. I've made it this far in life. I've been everything I need to be in my community, to my family, at work. I've been great. But friend, even a little bit of bad mixed into a whole lot of good in the eyes of God is still bad. And the only way that you can have eternal life is to have all of those bad eggs in your life replaced by the Lord Jesus Christ. Take all of those sins, all of those mistakes, all of those I wish I would haves, all of those poor judgment calls, every offense in the eyes of a perfectly holy God, take them all out and have them forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, how does that happen? I'd kind of like to get in on that because that, that sounds like what I need. Friend, the first thing you need to do is admit that you have sin in your life. Sin that you can't cover, sin that you can't change, sin that you can't just get by mixing it in a whole lot of good because it'll never take the bad away. What you need to do is present all of those bad eggs to Jesus. Take all of those sins, all those mistakes, all the error of your life and give them over to Him and say, Lord, I've done a lot of bad things in my life. I've made a lot of poor decisions. There's a lot of sin in my life. I give it all to You. And then what you do, once you confess that you're a sinner to God, and you give all of those sins to Him, then you trust that when Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, that He died to pay the price for all of the bad and the wrong and the sin that you've committed. And you confess that Jesus saves you. And you believe, the Bible says, in your heart and confess with your mouth that there is no other hope that you have. Whether the end of your life is the last breath that you take or whether it is, seeing it, it, whether it is Jesus splitting the sky and coming again, whichever comes first, you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is the only hope that you have. Friend, I'm here to tell you one simple truth, and that is this. Jesus is coming again. And you're either prepared or you're not. And perhaps the best first sign of the times is you being prepared for whenever your life ends, or whenever Jesus comes again, that you say with your heart and with your life, I trust Him. I turn my back on me. I'm not going to believe an error. I'm not going to believe a feeling. I'm not going to believe another world leader. I'm not going to put my faith and trust in anything other than what Jesus Christ has done for me. You can make that decision today. Because for all we know, Jesus has his thumbs on either side of that first seal, perhaps even right now. And maybe, just maybe, God has his finger on that seven-year stopwatch while I'm preaching. And how do any of us know 
when that day will come, when that first seal will be broken, if it hasn't been broken already. And that stopwatch begins of that seven-year period. The first sign of the times needs to be you being ready, giving your heart and life to Jesus. And if you've already made that decision and you've trusted in Jesus to make sure that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you take as many people to heaven with you as you can, would you make that commitment today? Let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the power of your word. And we're thankful, Lord, that you can speak to us, that you can encourage us and warn us, Father, at the same time. Lord, I pray if there are any believers in this room that are either uncomfortable or unwilling to share their faith with those that need Jesus, God, that today would be the day they would make a commitment to tell others about the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, if there's just one in the sound of my voice that has never placed their faith and trust in Jesus, God, that I pray that today, this moment, right now, would be the moment that they would turn their life away from sin and selfishness and what they think or how they feel, and Father, that they would place their faith and trust in Jesus once and for all. God, may this be the day, may this be the hour, may this be the moment they give their life to Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.